Well, this morning we're going to attack an issue that can quickly create a lot of controversy. Uh, we talked in the first week, though, about when issues like this come up, there's typically three responses. The first one, I reworded it, I called it today the let's just all be friends approach. Oh, well, Christians disagree, we haven't always come to the same idea, so, you know, we just really can't know. I'm, I'm agnostic on this issue, they might say, and yet we noted that's rather ironic, at least in regards to spiritual gifts, because 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul opens this topic, says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And we noted that that word for uninformed is agnoon, or agnoin, actually, the Greek word for knowledge. And you might heard of there, agnosis, um, where we get the word agnostic from. So Paul specifically says, I don't want you to be agnostic on this issue. So we can't just say, well... People disagree. Let's just all be friends. Let's not talk about this. But the other extreme is, this is so important. If you disagree, you're basically a heretic. Um, we should study this. We shouldn't be agnostic on this. And I do think we should reach conclusions. But we still need to go with the third approach is speaking the truth in love. So we don't want to avoid the issues, say we can't know. We don't want to flip to the other side and be arrogantly dogmatic on issues that are of secondary importance. But rather, as Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. With that being said, this is a good time to make a little transition. Last week we talked about prophecy, and I laid out what I thought, and I mentioned a couple times Keith saw some of it differently. Um, not on the major things, but maybe some of the terminology. And so I was going to give Keith just a few minutes to explain. And I think it's helpful to realize that even in a church, on secondary issues, we can view these things differently and still be brothers and sisters in unity. So Keith, wherever you want to go. You can come up here. Or we'll you do it up there just, All right. that, just for the microphone's sake for yeah. people catching up on it. Um, I really, I listened to last week's Sunday school class, and I really appreciated Jeremy highlighting the fact that he and I do have a different insight on some of this stuff, and this is not one of the fundamental creedal issues started in 1 Corinthians 15, and spiritual gifts would be outside of that, and then the disagreement of spiritual gifts, I think, would be outside of that. And when Jeremy and I talked, we were like this on almost everything, and then when it came to essentially just a matter of semantics, we disagreed on how that was. So let me just play that out really briefly, and it, it hinges on 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, I agree. I do not believe there is any new authoritative words. I think you have it right there in front of you. There is the authoritative word. I do not believe that we are going to get a new directive verbal word from the Lord because it's right there in front of you. Okay, I believe God is going to guide your appetites and your circumstances and, and the saints and the church and the teaching of his word to direct you that way. Um, so I do not believe there are new revelations about future events uh, currently going on at this time. Um, but so what do we do with this verse? So what does it mean to prophesy? Uh, it can, yes, mean a declaration of future events. It can mean an exposure of current events that is otherwise unknown. I don't think that's either one of those things is going on right now. Uh, it is a new specific word from God. I don't believe that's happening either. Or it can mean to reveal the will or message of God. Okay, again, let me emphasize, I do not believe 
that there is a new word, but I do believe that God gives insight in the application of his word to specific situations, uh, both for the believer and for the church. It could be in a specific conversation. It can be with regard to where the church is going. Now, I don't believe it's a word on, oh, I think, David, you should go into the mission field. I don't believe that. That would be a new thing. Um, but it's about what is currently going on. I look at, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. I think that is an example of exercising prophecy if Scripture is applied to it. If I take God's word and I know you're dealing with a particular situation, and I go, man, God's word applies specifically in this situation, I believe that is prophetic. That is part of prophesying, where you take the word and you apply it in a specific situation there. So what is it? Uh, I, would, I would argue that prophesying requires a spiritual discernment to specifically apply God's word to particular situations. And that may be to a group, a church, or to an individual. It's not simply teaching. It's not simply preaching. It is taking, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says, to where a person is specifically. And I think it's vital in the church today in our interactions with one another. I believe all saints should be doing this, just like all saints should have mercy, even though there's a gift of mercy. All saints should have faith, even though there's a gift of faith. I think all saints should be doing this as well. And I would... I would argue that that is what is meant by prophesying in the church for us today. And again, that's, I, I think Jeremy would argue, yes, we should be doing those things. He simply wouldn't call it prophesying. That's it. Any questions? <clears throat> well, I just had, like, you're saying taking scripture and applying it to somebody's life, you point somebody to that. So the caution is to make sure that that person who's doing that is interpreting the scripture correctly. Right. So what if they're not, I don't know how that applies to that exactly, but that's what the thought became yeah. in my head when you were saying that. Yeah, and it's not like God's revealing to me, oh, Elaine, you know, I, I think you're struggling with heroin. You know, God has revealed to me. That's not what I'm talking about. You've yeah. actually said, hey, I'm struggling with heroin. And I go, yeah. well, I, there's a word that applies to this. All right, well, hopefully that even sets the stage that this is an important topic that we're going to look at this morning, but one that you or others may disagree with. But as we jump into this, switching gears from prophecy to tongues, um, there's a few questions. What is speaking in tongues? Is what happened in Acts of the Apostles the same as what happened in Corinth? Is speaking in tongues a sign of the second blessing of the Spirit? Should every Christian speak in tongues? What is even the purpose of speaking in tongues in the first place? Um, but as we don't jump into this, I think one challenge we have is often people understand this based on their experience. So if they've had a good experience, then they wouldn't say it doesn't matter what Scripture says, but implicitly that, well, but I had this experience, and... That kind of trumps. Or, on the flip side, if they've always had bad experiences with this, if the scripture maybe challenges them to be more open to it, well, no, what, I went to this church, and their bad experience kind of closes them off to things that maybe scripture is calling them to. So, we're going to see this morning, experience is always understood 
through Scripture. Experiences aren't bad, and in fact, an experience the Apostle Peter has is what guides the church with uh, God's Word leading them to change their view on some things. But that being said, we need to start with <clears throat> the expansion of the Spirit in Acts. So if you have your little sheet there, we'll be going through these various verses. But we'll begin in Acts chapter 1. As you know, Jesus died, rose again. And we're told in Acts chapter 1, with verse 3, that he was with the disciples off and on for 40 days. And then, in verse 4, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until you've heard from me. So they're waiting there, and they're going to receive power, it tells us. Look at verse 8, we're going to read that. It says, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will all be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So that's kind of the brief context of them waiting in Jerusalem, waiting for the Spirit to come. And then in Acts chapter 2, this occurs. Joseph, could you read Acts 2, 1 through 13 for us? Sorry, I jumped on you quick there. <laughs> Okay. Acts 2, 1 through 13? Yes, sir. Alrighty. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappa, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, I don't know how to say that one, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. Alright, so here, the day of Pentecost, seven Sundays after Easter, and the disciples are all gathered together, and they're praying, but... There was no action they did, nothing they did. The prophets, the Spirit came upon them as divided tongues of fire and rested on them. And when that happened, what did they do? This is not rhetorical for you to answer, for you to answer. Yeah, they spoke and you got, it's clear, they spoke in different languages. Now, how do we know it was actually different languages? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they say. We hear you in our own tongue. How is that possible? So, at least in Acts 2 at Pentecost, 
they were able to speak a language they'd never studied, they'd never spoken. They were able to do this, and others from the other languages were able to understand them. So the gift was not the gift of hearing, as though they were speaking something and then everyone else was able to hear it. The gift was the speakers could speak something in another language. Uh, as I was getting ready for this series, I was looking at various resources, and at least uh, some people said Max Turner's book, The Holy Spirit and Spiritual Gifts, was kind of the definitive charismatic work. Um, but he even says, there's no doubt that the Pentecost phenomenon is the speaking of actual foreign languages. So it's not just us, even charismatics have said this, say, look, right here, this is actual different foreign languages. And so from this, just starting off, we're going to kind of look big picture on these things. The Holy Spirit came in a unique way at this time, and the men spoke in foreign languages. We could dive in, but we're not going to. There's interesting kind of connection it's not the same, but a very close connection between tongues when they un are understood and prophecy. Because that's Joel 2, he's, which Peter refers to. He talks about prophecy. And we'll maybe tie into that more when we get to 1 Corinthians. But here's this unique event. But now we need to flip over to Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17. And Marie, could you read that for us? Acts 8, 14 through, actually 19 if you don't mind. things in these few verses that aren't stated, but what we clearly know is there's these group of people in Samaria who come to faith. Now, why is Samaria important to recognize biblically? Historically, you could also say. They're hated and seen as worse than dogs by the Jews because they had bread and had, had kids with the, the local people there that were not of the nation of Israel. Yeah. So, these were hated people when Jesus wanted to go into Samaria in Luke chapter 9, and he was rebuffed. This is the words of James and John. Well, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Yeah. They don't like Samaritans, and if they're going to reject, let's just kill them. They're no good. John 4, and Jesus talking to the woman, Samaritan woman, it says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So now... Here's this issue where, wait, some of these Samaritans are believing. And so the apostles go down, and when they talk to them, what do they find out? Well, they found out that they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So then when they lay hands on them, they receive the Spirit, and what do they do? They, well, doesn't tell us. 
they had mighty things happen through them. What were those mighty things? Well, we're not told. But Simon, who is well known, wanted this power. Now, I'm going to argue, based on all these other things, I think Elise was partially speaking in tongues. I can't prove that. But nonetheless, I think as we go through these, we're going to see a pattern, and they are receiving something new. The question, though, is, is this saying, well, look, this is a pattern for all time. Some people are saved, and then when you have some apostolic or leading figure come lay hands, like happened here, then you receive the Spirit and you receive the Spirit's power. Well, great question. We're going to look at that when we get to the end. Uh, next one is Acts chapter 10. This is a fascinating story. It goes from Acts 10 to 11. Uh, and it's, you can't always make a definitive argument based on length of something in the Bible as to importance. But it is rather interesting that this story gets 66 verses. When a lot of other stories, we go, man, we wish we had a little bit more on that. But Luke spends a long time detailing everything that happens here. Um, we're not going to read all of it. I'm going to set some of it up, though. But begins in chapter 10 with this man named Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's living in Caesarea, but it says he's a God-fearer. And he's told to send for this man named Peter in Joppa. But we are going to read what Peter experiences Gavin, could you read Acts chapter 10, 9 through 23? So 10, 9 through 23. On the morrow, as they went on their journey, then drew nigh to the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheep net of the four corners, and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake to him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call now but that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and stood before the gate. And called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were long dead. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius, from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause therefore ye are coming? And they said, Cornelius is in turn a just man. And one that feareth God, and a good report among all the nation of the Jews, was one from God by an holy angel, and sent for thee into his house, and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in, and lodged with them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Alright, so, Peter comes, but there's an issue. Look down at verse 28. Peter says it. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone, or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me with, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So there's this issue here. Jews who believe they're being faithful to God in the Old Testament, or at least in this time, didn't think they should associate with Gentiles. And yet Peter now is going in doing this. And then Cornelius recounts the vision God gave him. And then Peter explains the gospel to him. And then, John, could you read chapter 10, 44 through 48, the end of the chapter? 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing and speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, it's obvious, we just read it, but what happens to these Gentile believers? The Holy Spirit fell and they prophesied. Uh, And speaking in tongues. Yeah. The same thing that happened at Pentecost. Now, how do we know it's the same thing? Well, we're going to see because right after this, Peter goes back to Jerusalem praising God, and you know what happens? People get upset with him, Jewish believers. And they go, look down at chapter 11, verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They're upset. Peter, you're not being a faithful believer. You're going with these people you shouldn't hang out with. And Peter goes and recounts everything. But then look down at verse 15 to 18. Oops, I went to chapter 12, chapter 11, 15 through 18. Peter saying, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on us, us at the beginning, at Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift, so how do we know it's the same as Pentecost? Because that's what he said. The same gift. We're not having to guess, is this the same thing he says? This is the same thing that happened at the beginning. So if the same gift, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So these people are saying, Peter, you shouldn't be doing this. Even Peter had to be given a vision three times. He's going, I shouldn't do this. He goes, he preaches the gospel. They believe they speak in tongues and he's amazed. He goes back to Jerusalem. These people are still saying, no, this isn't right. He recounts what happens. They spoke in tongues. And then, verse 18, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, the Spirit coming upon them in baptism, oh, sorry, coming upon them, and then them speaking in tongues, was clear message to them, a clear experience that, look, these people are now part of God's people as well. Not just Jews, not just people who become Jewish by adopting all of our cultural practices, and that's going to be the issue, because what did Peter see? He saw in his vision, I don't need to call food that's common unclean. I can partake of all and be with people who partake of things that are outside the Mosaic law. Now you might think, okay, done. Right here, Acts 11, Peter experienced it, they experienced it, so case over, case closed. Well, it's going to rise in Galatians. So hold a finger in Acts, but flip over to Galatians chapter 2, because Peter, he had this incredible experience, had this vision, was there, and yet, what do we read in Galatians chapter 2? Tracy, could you read Galatians chapter 2, 11? Through 14. And by the way, Cephas is another name for Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the issue arises again later. Peter experienced all this, and yet he's going back with the people who are going, no, that's not right. Actually, they need to follow the Mosaic Code. They need to be getting circumcised. And so he disassociates with Gentile believers, and Paul comes and rebukes him. But how does Paul let him know this is wrong? He's going to take the experience, and he's going to base it on the truth of God's word. Keith, could you read the next few verses, 15 and 16? Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying, look... How, Peter, you know, how is anyone justified? It's not by keeping the Mosaic law. So you don't need to be disassociating. In fact, you're denying the gospel in your actions when you do that. So this was a major issue for the early church. And it had to be worked out there. And if you go back to Acts, we're going to flip to Acts 15. Because there, it came to a head and they had to have a whole council. The first council of the church that we're aware of, the Jerusalem council. And again, some Jewish believers are saying, look, we should not as Jews, as wanting to be faithful to God, we should not associate with Gentiles. And so they gather together and they're talking and talking. But the interesting thing is the thing that causes them to change their mind is, David, if you read Acts 15, 6 through 11, Acts 15, 6 through 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So what does Peter do? He says, verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So the experience that they had was pivotal and changing also with that girded by Scripture. Because what does he say in verse 11? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Paul was saying, Peter's saying, look, the truth of Scripture, saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's why the Mosaic Code is no longer needing to be enforced. And that helps us explain And Now we have Scripture, so we judge all experiences based on this too. 
So with that being said, we'll look at one more thing and then kind of look big picture at Acts. So turn to Acts chapter 19, because we have one other interesting situation. Acts 19, 1 through 7. Christina, would you be willing to read that for us? Acts 19, 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. all right, so here we have a second time where people believe. Then later, the apostles come, and they lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And then they are able to prophesy and speak in tongues. So again, is this, is Acts 19 a pattern? Is this really what should happen for all time? That there's a moment of salvation, and then you need the authority in the church, whatever that is, pastor, apostle, to come, and then you can experience this second blessing. Well, I want to pause and say, well, let's look at the big picture of what's going on in Acts and note some things about it. So if you read through Acts, I didn't count this, I'm counting on men who I believe are faithful, telling the truth, but there's over 20 conversions in Acts. So 20 different stories, you know, like Ethiopian eunuch, Philippian jailer, Paul, all these different conversions. But in none of those is there ever told anything about, one, being told to wait for the Holy Spirit, and two, never are they told of being filled with the Spirit. Um, not saying that didn't happen, but that's just these individual personal conversions are not talked about in that way. Um, second, though there are numerous conversions, we only read of speaking in tongues after Pentecost three times, well, Pentecost three times explicitly, Pentecost, Acts 10, Acts 19, and then I would argue implicitly also Acts 8. Uh, and third, in each one of these occurrences, there are distinct groups that had a history with Israel or were unique in some way. So, Acts 2, it's the disciples experiencing something new. Acts 8, it's the Samaritans with whom they have deep hatred. Acts 10, it's the Gentiles with whom they have deep hatred. And then there's this unique time in redemptive history, you might say, God has been working, which only existed for a while, and that is people who were saved under the ministry of John the Baptist, but then they weren't with the church when... The Spirit came at Pentecost. So what about these people? Now, don't believe there's anyone still alive today who is in that time frame. They've all... I've heard there are, actually. Okay, well, that's another... In, in a similar defensiveness, that there actually are in Israel some followers of John the Baptist. Okay, well, we'll chase that rabbit some other time. But, for by and large, you're not going to meet someone who just was given only 
Luke 1 and 2 or, and go, oh, or I guess just the beginning of 3. The message is repentance, and i got to believe what John the Baptist said, and they don't know of the Spirit. And even then, the Spirit would be given. We'll talk about that. But if you look at the bigger picture of Acts, I think the giving of tongues is pretty clearly being shown to say, look, God came to redeem all of mankind, not just Jewish believers. And if you go back to Acts 1.8, what did Jesus tell the disciples? You're going to be my witnesses to Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This was the gospel clearly going forth. We're seeing that in Acts as it goes to these various groups of people. As well, the book of Acts is challenging, as with any history in the Bible, because we have to ask, are we being given prescriptions or descriptions? Are we being given what should be normal for all time or what should be unique? And we have to look at each one of these. You know, Acts occurs in a unique time in God's plan to save people. At this time, they're transitioning from the Mosaic Law, and yet now Jesus has come to fulfill it. They're living in the time in which there's now a breaking down, as Ephesians says, of racial hostilities. Those barriers have been broken, and they're living in a time when the Spirit is now given in a new and unique way. So what do you look like when you transition from this to that? Well, sometimes those transitions have some things occur that don't happen any other time. As well, I think, and you could spend a lot of time on this, but just make a note of it, um, I think in some way this is the undoing of Babel. What happened at the Tower of Babel? The languages were confused, but what is God one day going to do? He's going to bring everyone together and we'll all have one common language. I think this is a foretaste of, hey, under the Spirit, we can all understand the same thing. Now, I don't think that's fully going to be consummated until we're with the Lord, but it's a foretaste of that. And I think that's partially what's going on. So let's go back and examine the two stories, the ones that maybe make us go, ooh, what's that about? Oh, Acts 8 and Acts 19, I left it open-ended. So they both seem to support the idea that you could receive the Spirit after salvation. Yet while that was their experience, and we should be clear, that is what happened, I would argue that was unique. And not just because of this overarching reading of Acts, but the rest of Scripture. You know, no story or experience rightly understood ever contradicts the rest of Scripture. Thus, theology, doctrine, application of any story. So if you're reading a story and you draw a principle that goes against the rest of what the Bible teaches, you have misunderstood what that story is trying to teach you. And when we began looking at 1 Corinthians 12, you may remember that he said in verse 3 that anyone who is truly filled with God's Spirit will say, Jesus is Lord. So he was saying every believer is a person who is filled with the Spirit. And we looked at that. It's not saying just the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is like we could like trick someone into saying that, and like, ha-ha, now they're a Christian. It's like you can't really live a life that submits to the Lordship of Christ unless you're filled with God's Spirit. And thus, anyone who is a believer, Paul argued, was someone who is filled with the Spirit. Every believer has the Spirit. So in Acts 8, what's going on? Well, I think it was done in that way 
to show the Jewish believers, look, Samaritans are equally, fully participants in God's plan of salvation. There's no second-class citizens. There's no, like, well, they're saved, but we're not going to do anything with them. As for Acts 19, that was just a weird time frame where it's possible to have heard the message of John the Baptist but not have been with the believers at Pentecost. So, today, everyone who believes at the moment of faith receives the Spirit. Uh, I believe D.A. Carson summarizes it well. He says, Acts provides not a paradigm for individual Christian experience, but the account of the gospel's outward movement geographically, racially, and above all, theologically. So we've covered a lot of ground there. Open it up for comments or questions. So like I would base it on one, like 1 Corinthians 12, where no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So it's impossible to be a believer because I don't believe that you can believe in Jesus as Savior and not Lord. I'd say that those are tied together. Can I give a verse? Yeah, there's others. Yeah, yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that is why we believe today that when you believe, that is when you are tattooed by the Holy Spirit. And as you look at the bigger picture, I think it makes sense. Well, why did God allow this to happen for them? Well, he was trying to show his gospel expanding, trying to help the Jewish believers understand. Oh, I mean... It took a long time for them to accept the Gentiles. They had to be shown this both by example and scripture over and over. And they're still, Apostle Peter going, eh, I don't know, maybe I should, eh, yeah, sorry. Signs, signs of authority. Yeah. When something is introduced at the beginning, it has to be explained or else no one understands what it is. Yeah. Well, well, let's flip to 1 Corinthians. That's where we've been and went over there. For aside, so as we move into 1 Corinthians, we do have to note some major, not least major, note some differences. So here's four. First, in Acts, people understood the tongue speakers without interpreters. But now in 1 Corinthians, you say you need interpreters. Well, that's different. Why it's different? Well, we'll talk about that. Second, in Acts, tongues seem to be used publicly with the group. All those are public things. In 1 Corinthians... 14.14, Paul will discuss praying individually in tongues. And 18, he basically encourages them to use tongues privately rather than publicly. Why is he doing that? Third, tongues and acts kind of seems to be uncontrollable. They're doing something and then the Spirit comes, on God, from, comes from God and they speak in tongues. Whereas here, they are told to only do it two or three and have an interpreter. There's an idea that they control when they speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues. And fourth, whereas it was obvious, very clear in Acts, they were speaking known human languages. Here is speaking in the tongues of men and of angels, perhaps opening up the idea that there's this other kind of speaking in tongues. So those are some differences. But let's begin in chapter 12. 
And it seems like this issue of tongues is one of the big issues in 1 Corinthians because some of them are thinking, I'm better Christian, I'm more spiritual, I'm more godly because I speak in tongues. And yet, notice what Paul says in chapter 12, verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the Spirit gives to each one. And then look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Spirit gives each. He gives as he wills. But, go back to verse 10. He says, to some are given various kinds of tongues. Not to all, to some. Or if you jump down to verse 28 of chapter 12, he's listing all these various things. He says, and God is appointed in the church. This is chapter 12, 28. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the clear answer to all of those is no. So if any person says to be a Christian, you have to be able to speak in tongues, we need to clearly and flatly say that's wrong. Very clearly, Paul says you, not everyone is going to be able to speak in tongues. Now, a lot of this, I think, can be secondary doctrine that you know we have friends maybe who are charismatics or who believe they speak in tongues that we can go okay we disagree that's fine until they say well you're not a believer you're not genuinely honoring god with your life if you also don't do this and then we need to push back and go well if you're going to say that then i need to actually contradict you and say that's wrong you can be a follower of christ be fully serving god and not do this based on those verses and any and others. You know, Jesus, if you say you need Jesus plus anything else to be live a life that fully honors God, you are subtracting from what Jesus did. It's Jesus plus nothing. He alone gives you a life that can fully serve God. Um, so that's kind of a big thing we need to say. But let's move forward to First Corinthians fourteen one through five, and here we immediately run across the problems we stated earlier. Um, let's see. Katie, could you read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than, than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Right, so this is the problem because in Acts... Acts chapter 2, do they need interpreters? No. So why do they need interpreters now? And this really gets to kind of the heart of this discussion is, is tongues in 1 Corinthians something different than tongues in Acts? Um, again, we saw tongues in Acts was clearly speaking another human language. Now, both 
charismatics and non-charismatics will cite this, these same studies where people speaking in tongues have been recorded, and then they take it to linguists, people who study language, and go, is this a language? And every time they say, no, this is not a language. Even Max Turner, the authoritative work, or at least some people think authoritative for charismatics, agrees. So why would they still, why would people like Max Turner say this is still legitimate for today? Well, some will argue, well, it's the tongues of angels. That's a different type of thing than modern human linguistics. Or, what does Paul say in Romans 8.26? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's what we mean by speaking in tongues. They may say, it's this groanings, it's not a human language. Then I would ask, well, why do we need an interpreter? Um, I'm going to switch to my opinion for a second. In my opinion, what has changed is not that tongues have changed, but the situation has changed. Whereas in Jerusalem, there are people from all over the world. In Corinth, you mainly have people who speak the same language. So there, you need an interpreter because while they're speaking another language, they don't know that language because they all, I don't know, whatever you spoke in Corinth, they all speak Corinthian, would that be right? <laughs> Greek, Hebrew, I don't know, whatever they spoke. Um, as well, I would argue the fact that you can interpret is implying it's something that can be interpreted. It's a language. Now, I have to be clear, could be private angelic language. Or, this is what Max Turner writes, he says, Not surprisingly, many charismatic leaders have acknowledged that the evidence at present is against the view that tongues today are like what happened at Pentecost. Um, thus, they tend instead to elucidate it as a natural phenomenon, which simply becomes a spiritual gift when oriented towards the Lord. In a similar way that to which speak is in vernacular can become a spiritual gift. In other words, what he's saying is, look, this is a common thing that happens, but then people use it for the Lord, and that makes it a spiritual gift. And that's when I pause and say, as I have on many things, okay, well, maybe that's true, but that's not what happened at Pentecost. You can't say you want to be a Pentecostal, which means you're being like Pentecost, and then say, but what we're doing is not like Pentecost. I'm not trying to be rude or unfair, but that's just not accurate to say we're a church like Pentecost, but what we do today actually isn't like Pentecost. Um, and this happens on many things. Oh, yes, healings still occur today, and then you show them all the ways healings occurred in the Bible, and they go, well, not like that. Well, yes, prophecy still occurs today, but... Well, not like the prophecy in the Bible, the small p prophecy. Like, well, look, are we talking about what happened in the New Testament and saying those things are happening today, or are we saying there's things like that? Because, yeah, I would agree there are things like that, and God is still active in the world, but that's different. If you read Joel 2 and what happened at Pentecost, they're not talking about private prayer language. And I'm not denigrating private prayer language, if you think that's something. I'm just saying that's not what Joel 2 and Acts 2 is talking about in those regards. So from that, let's, I want to be clear, I'm not saying people who speak in tongues are demonic, nor am I saying that they're necessarily doing something sinful by speaking in tongues. We need to probably just ask them some questions. We need to make sure they're guided by Scripture, and we're getting, getting pretty close to end on time. So what are some clear things we should encourage them? Well, verse 5, you should do this with an interpreter. If you're doing it publicly. 
14 through 19, Paul seems to maybe encourage the use of tongues privately. Uh, if you're going to do it publicly, verses 26 through 27 of Acts, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, say only two or three at most. And then probably for most of us, we need to hear 1 Corinthians 14, 39, don't forbid speaking in tongues. So we all need to hear all of that. So in conclusion, when this topic comes up, and I'm going to leave a little time for discussion, I think we need to do at least three things. First, make sure as we're talking to our friends, we're clear on definitions. What do they mean by speaking on speaking in tongues? Because often we're just speaking past each other because we're going, well, it should be like what's an ax, and they're, they're talking about something completely different. Well, if they're saying, when I speak in tongues, it's when I do my morning Bible reading, and then I just I speak in tongues in prayer. Okay. That's something different. Second, we need to ask them what they think this means. Again, if they're saying this is something we do at our church, some people can do it, not all. You know, not everyone can do this. It's just an extra blessing, though, not saying they're more spiritual. Okay, that's different than them saying, for you to honor the Lord, if you have not been filled with the Spirit and spoken tongues, you're not a Christian. That's a completely different conversation. Third, I think you need to ask them about their experience. Experience is not bad. I'll speak to my family members, extended family that are in the charismatic movement, many of them grew up in what they would describe as cold, graceless, lifeless, liturgical churches. That's their words. I'm not picking on liturgical churches. Then they got involved in charismatic churches and they were like, grace, this is wonderful. Joy. Like people come to church and they're excited. And you know what? People are getting saved here. And they're going, this matches scripture and a lot of the charismatic movement does match scripture and is wonderful we should not they're not all horrible people there's a lot of wonderful charismatics and so why do they believe all this well because they finally came to a church that read scripture and was alive and so they take the whole thing so you should ask them and you might end up as i do with many of my family members if you they think they speak in tongues great they're not saying i need to do that they come to my church and they're not like y'all are heretics so we can have grace and kindness with them, a wondering, understanding where they come from. So anyways, I left you all of three minutes. So any comments or questions? Or I think it's important with, with this whole chapter, so look at Paul's emphasis, and there's like about over ten words or phrases that talk about building up. And you know, he's trying to untie a knot and point them to the most important thing, and that's the building up of the church. And if we're yeah, if we get to the end of this discussion and we're still all by ourselves. And that's where we're going to end next week. So I'll have one more week. And then the week after that, Keith will be leading Sunday school and then no Sunday school for summer. But next week, we're going to kind of look big picture again, not get lost in the trees or the weeds. Other comments or thoughts? Yes? Even outside the church, people will tell you that the biggest problems we have in society is failure to communicate, whether it's husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee, student, teacher. If we really want to be a church or be united, we have to speak where the other people can understand it. So I would argue that even two people that speak English and have spoke English all their lives, sometimes they're speaking past each other. And, you know, for this to work, we got to speak the same language. And if, uh, Democrats don't understand Republicans and vice versa. They don't get anywhere. They, they've got to speak the same language. Okay. I had a question about 1 Corinthians 14, verses 4 and 5. 
in the fourth verse he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That sounds like Pentecost. The church is being built up in Pentecost while they're speaking tongues. So it's almost like he's redefining what tongues versus prophecy is there. And then counter to that in verse 5, he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Oh, sorry. Uh, where's the one who... I missed the other one. The one where it says that the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. That was verse 4. Okay, sorry. They're all they're all together there. Yeah, yeah. The, um, so, but like, so, speaking in tongues in Pentecost is building up the church, and which is, he says, is what prophesies like, but now he's saying speaking in tongues is not necessarily to be understood by someone else like it was in Pentecost, but it's to build, to build the speaker up. I'm having trouble understanding the, uh, the, the, uh, why it seems like he is describing them differently, the purpose of them differently. And this, the, the idea, and I've been in several Pentecostal service, uh, circles for quite a while, the idea that speaking in tongues does build the speaker up is a powerful thing many of them believe and practice, and they get it right from this verse. But the episodes of speaking in tongues in Acts seem so different as far as their outworking. Yeah, well, it gets more confusing. Uh, you <laughs> read 22 through... Uh, 23 of the same chapter yeah he talks about how tongues are signed not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but believers but then he'll go on to discourage one and encourage the other which seems to be the opposite of what he just said and we'll talk about it some next week but I think the basic idea is Paul seems to often in here when he talks about tongues be talking about uninterpreted tongues Okay. so verse 5 um the one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues. If you didn't put the other phrase, you could almost substitute that phrase unless someone interprets. So the church may be built up. Be saying, look, interpreted tongues are just as good for the church as prophecy. But they're not being interpreted. You don't have an interpreter, so you need to stop. And he talks about in verse 14 and 18, or verse 18, I thank God that I speak tongues more than all of you. So Paul says he spoke in tongues. But he's saying, let's not do it publicly. So I think that implies Paul is in some way using tongues in his private life. So, and I think he is saying that's beneficial to him and others. Which at Pentecost, when they were speaking the other languages, it's interesting, like, were they being built up? Well, I think that's why it's yeah. different. Yeah. I mean, I so think there is a believer who has this prayer language is, is finding a, a, almost a, a greater ability to pour out their heart to God in a way that... Perhaps I can't with my... So are you also saying that tongues and language is a different word? It's the same word. It's the same word, but being interpreted differently. I, I, I think it... Because well, I could see Paul being multilingual. Yeah. Exceedingly. Beyond. Well, I would say this. So the, one of the challenges is we only have Acts and 1 Corinthians. <laughs> there's no other place in the New Testament that will talk about it. So... There's all these differences in the way Paul speaks, so then we're kind of going, well, what did he mean? Because, like you said, some of that seems pretty different than Pentecost. Are you going to talk about Acts 8, 26 and 27 next week as well? Uh, Not Acts, uh, Romans. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Are you going to touch on I thought I mentioned it about how they have groanings deeper than words. Because some, some things would say the way it says it's too deep for words, they, they think that means it's not a tongue, it's not a word, that that's a wrong uh, explanation for a private prayer language. Do you think 
maybe like part of it, like talking about in tongues, like if Jeremy knew how to speak Aramaic and he preached to us in Aramaic, we would all think very highly of Jeremy for doing the work to learn Aramaic. <laughs> but it's not building us up because we don't understand it. Whereas if you if he did preach in Aramaic, but he had an interpreter that said, "Hey, this is what this means," you know, then we're being built up. But but if he spoke Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever, and he preached to us in it, we might think very highly of him because he's done that work. It's but a, it's not building us up. It's a demonstration of God's power. Yeah. If it was by the Spirit, you're saying not yeah. that he went to school. Or, or even if he went to school, like, you know, like that's what I when I think of like building the speaker up. That's what I think of like you know you. That it's like I went to school and I'm going to teach you this, but then like. But that's it. And, but then, well, there's a lot more we can say. We're going to wrap up there. Good coffee, donuts. You can keep, continue these conversations. <laughs>